Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Now, it's my privilege to introduce to you today our guest preacher. Pastor Edie has served in gospel ministry for more than 30 years and in a number of gospel ministry roles, including college ministry, missions ministry, church planner, and most recently as an executive pastor. He's been married to his wife, Rhonda, for 26 years, and they have three children, Taylor, Catherine, and Austin. They recently relocated back to the Ozarks after serving in South Florida to become covenant members of LifePoint. A close friend of Pastor Lane's for the last 22 years, they served together on a church staff for five years. Pastor Lane has invited Pastor Edie to preach on a topic very dear to LifePoint, God's heart for the nations. And here's a, just a quick reminder that at PyFest, we're also going to commission two of our very own families to the mission field. So LifePoint, please welcome with me Pastor Edie this morning. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for that introduction. Uh, as was said, uh, my wife Rhonda and I are members here at LifePoint, kind of a great pleasure to be a part of you. We, we go to the 11 o'clock service. I've never been to an 8 o'clock nor a 9.30 service here at LifePoint. So this is a, a new thing for me. And I, I, I walked in this morning and I asked a couple people, I said, how many people actually show up at 8 o'clock? This is really incredible. Uh, I'm convinced that 8 o'clock people hold a special, special place in heaven. And, and you're going to have like a better address than me because I, I, I come at, at 11 o'clock. But thank you for being here today. And as I start, I, I would like to, uh, to just say to uh, you uh, my great affection and my wife's great affection for Lane and Kristen Harrison. It's traditional that whenever a guest speaker comes that they say nice things about the pastor at the church. That's just what we do. It's like in the unwritten code. And half the time the preacher comes and he really doesn't know much about the guy he's replacing. But I actually do. I've known Lane and Kristen for well over 20 years. They're dear friends of us. And I've thought for weeks knowing that I was going to speak today what can I say about Lane and Kristen? Really that you don't already know. I just came up with two words. Real deal. That's the way they are. Both of them are that way. Whenever we're socializing, having dinner together, or just out riding mountain bikes, he's the real deal. She's the real deal. They love you. They love Jesus, and they love being your pastor and the pastor's wife, they care deeply about you, and my wife and I love them. And let me say again, we are, we are just very thankful, my wife and I, to be a part of this church. Great place, and we're thankful to be here. Well, today's message is one of those messages that, that kind of revolves, gets on the calendar, revolves around a special time of year. And uh, we have some of those messages. One of them is Christmas and if, if you come to that Sunday closest to Christmas, what do you expect to be talked about? 
the birth of Jesus. Last Sunday, we all showed up at church, and it was what? Mother's Day. And Lane spoke about mothers. Because if Lane had not spoken about mothers on Mother's Day, there'd have been some roast preacher for lunch, right? That's what we do. And I call uh, last Sunday and Christmas, those are like class A Sundays. All right, they're, they're, they're up here. Now, Father's Day, it's not necessarily a class A Sunday. You might show up and might talk about dads, but it's more like a class B, B plus. Today, today is kind of a, a class B, maybe C plus day. This is graduation weekend, right? It's that time of year. And so today, we've got a message just for graduates. Now, in the 930 service, the graduates are going to be here and we're going to recognize them. So they obviously don't get up at 8 o'clock. They're not coming to this service. They're going to be here at 930. But we are honoring them today. And we have a message for them. A message for them. This past week, my son, who actually graduated last year from, uh, from Florida State University, uh, he, he is in the, the National uh, Guard in Florida. And he was, had just completed four months of training at Fort Lee in Virginia. And he was driving from Virginia back to Tampa, Florida, where he lives. And right as he was getting in his car, this is the coolest thing. You can get on your iPhone, you can tell where your kids are. Isn't that awesome? And so I knew when he was pulling out of the parking lot. And I called him. And I said, son, I'm so proud of you. You're about to drive for 12 hours to Tampa, Florida. Be careful. Be careful. What are we, are, what are we going to say today to our graduates? What, what is it that we need to say? It's very simple. We need to say to them the most important thing we could say to them before they leave our home. Parents, you know this. When you are going on a date night and you're uh, leaving and the babysitter's there, right before you leave, you get down on your hands and knees with your kids, and what do you say to them? Behave. It's the most important thing you can say to them before you leave their presence. And so today, as we talk to our graduates, we are saying to them, what we believe is the most important thing we could say to them before they leave our home, before they leave our tutelage, before they leave our protection, before they leave our church, our church family. And here's what it's about. Here's the most important thing. And guys, it's not about us. It's about God. It is about him, it is about his heart, it is about his desire for this world. It is about what he wants to see happen and how he wants you and me and the graduates and every other person that calls themselves a Christ follower, how he wants us to fit into his grand plan. And in fact, I call it his ultimate passion. His ultimate passion. Today, again, it's for graduates 
But if you're here and you know Jesus Christ, you're part of his family, this message is for you. So let's all tune our hearts in. Let's listen fast. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Friends, Scripture is full of wonderful, wonderful encouragement and instruction on how to live and and how to navigate this time that we have been given on this planet. And, and, And I'm so glad that Scripture does that for us. Scripture gives us all that we need to know to live what Scripture calls abundant lives. And, and, and when we say abundant life, I would say a wonderful life. And aren't you glad that it does? I'm glad that it does. But get this. If we live wonderfully well, but miss the main passion which is the main passion and mission of God's heart. Get this, we fail at the most important thing. And quite frankly, if we miss the main mission and passion of God's heart, then we really haven't lived wonderfully well. The most important thing we could say to our seniors, our graduating seniors, our students, and ourselves is what we're going to talk about today. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. You all know this. I think it's on the screen. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. You all know that verse. You've heard it a hundred, a thousand, a million times. The Great Commission simply stated, go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Take the gospel, the good news of Christ, and go spread the message to every person on earth. Go and converse with them. Go and reason with them. Go and compel them. Implore all men and women and children, wherever they are at, to surrender their lives, bend their knee to Jesus Christ, to become worshipers of the one true God. Join the family. It's simple, right? The Great Commission, we we all know about it, but friends, there's a whole lot more to it. You see, preachers, us, people like me and, and Lane and theologians, we have kind of singled out Matthew 28, and we have prioritized it, this passage that I just read, as the Great Commission, and quite frankly, we reference it so often, and only it, that, that, we, have, that we have pigeonholed it into the Great Commission, as if it is the only place in Scripture where we are told to go to the nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples is Matthew 28, but it's just one example, one example of God sharing his heart when it comes to his heart for all people to become followers and worshipers of him. Actually, actually, there are many more places where God speaks And in fact, they are all throughout the Bible. And in fact, they start in the first chapter of the Bible. I may be showing you something today you've never seen before. Genesis 
1.28. Let me read it for us. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. On the sixth day of creation, it says God created them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Friends, this is the first example of the Great Commission. It is the first time, the first time, and God wasted no time in Scripture, but it is the first time that God gives expression to his ultimate passion. Understand what he says, what God says to us in the first chapter of the book. What does he say? He says, go therefore, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he's not solely or simply talking about the procreation of the human race here. And that's what we typically think about. But the question is, multiply what? What are we to multiply? Well, in the context of this passage, you've got Adam and Eve, you've got the creation of man, and when God is speaking to them, something hasn't happened yet. They have not sinned. And so who God is speaking to are his most prized creation on earth, man and woman, and he is saying to them, you go and you multiply yourself. Multiply people that look just like you. And what they looked like was this. As much as is possible, and we haven't seen this, because of the fall, but they were perfect worshipers. They had not sinned. And so the commission is this, to man and to women and to children, go throughout all the world and engage with me in helping to duplicate who you are as worshipers of the God Most High. Friends, there is a thread and I want you to remember this. There is a thread that runs all through Scripture. And it starts in Genesis, and it's unraveled all through Scripture. It is in every book, or every book in the Bible. And in most books, it is there multiple times. Abraham, if you read the account of Abraham, and you know what? We've been going through uh, Genesis for quite a while. Hadn't this study with Lane uh, that he's been doing with us been so good. I've been so blessed by it. But from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, King David, the prophets of the Old Testament, all of them understood God's ultimate passion. And it is recorded in every book of the Bible. Now I want you to go back. We're going to do a little in-depth uh, looking and study here at Matthew uh, 28, God says, when you engage and partner with me in the mission of going, I want you to know that success will follow. Why? Because of authority. Authority. And that's why this rendition of the Great Commission is so important. Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. The heavenly father gave it, gave it to me, and now I'm giving it to you. So be encouraged as we go about the great commission. We have the authority from the heavenly father. Mark chapter 16 verse 15 gives us a different aspect of it. Jesus yeah, gives us the extent of our mission. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole, the whole of creation. What does that mean? Everyone. If you have ever wondered exactly who should we be going to tell this good news, it's very simple. It is everyone. And you know who everyone includes? Everyone. Every person on this planet. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 47. And he said, this is Jesus, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. What is the objective of our going it is to tell them that Christ suffered. Guys, this is really important. Don't miss this point. It is to tell them that Christ suffered, died, and rose from the dead so that if they repent of their sins, they will be forgiven and they will share in the victory that Jesus brings over death. It is our objective. Now, here's why this is so important that we remember the objective of the Great Commission because sometimes we get lost in it. A number of years ago, I was in Nicaragua. I was at the hotel across from the airport in Managua. We were doing some pastor training there and I look at the registration desk and there is a group of, I could tell they were students and they all had Texas A&M shirts on. And so I engaged them in conversation and I said, hey, uh, what are you guys doing here? And they said, we're on a mission trip. And I said, wow, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I didn't know that there were Christians at Texas A&M. And uh, no, I didn't say that. And uh, I'm a Texas Tech Red Raiders, get your guns up. And so I, I said to them, I said, well, that's, that's really cool that you're here in Nicaragua doing a mission trip. I'm doing a mission trip too. Uh, I said, what are you doing on your mission trip? And they said, oh, I mean, just big smiles on their face. They were so excited about what they were doing. They said, we are veterinary students. And we are here doing spading and neutering of stray animals. That was my reaction. Friends, that's not missions. It's just not missions. But sometimes, if we're not careful... We do things under the umbrella of missions that really aren't missions. We know, need to know the objective of what we are doing. John 20, 21, Jesus says to his disciples, and thus to us, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. This is so cool. Jesus says, this is a great leader right here. Jesus says, Jesus says, you are just continuing what I have already started. He wouldn't ask us to go do something that he hadn't already done himself. Acts 1.8, explicit geography. He says, 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what does that mean to us? This is real simple, and I love it that Jesus broke it down so simply for us. We, you and me, are to be part of sharing the good news of Jesus in our city, Ozark, our state, Missouri, our country, the USA, and the world, all the nations outside of our borders. But he gets even more granular than that. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. The last book of the Bible uh, where we get this glimpse of the end of the story. How God has it all planned out. What it's going to look like in the end. And the writer John says, after this, I looked, and he's got this vision going on that God's given him. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, from every nation, from every tribe, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In our song set earlier, we sang about that. Tyler read about that in Revelation. He gets very minute in his detail. God cares so much about every person in every group, no matter how big that group is or small. Friends, he wants a representative. He wants people around his throne from every tribe in the Amazon region of South America, from the remotest Arctic villages above the Arctic Circle, from the remotest jungles in Africa, from every Arabic nomadic tribe in the Middle East. He wants people from those groups around his throne. I had the privilege years ago to work in northern Mexico in the state of Chihuahua, and there's this Indian group there, indigenous group called the Tarahamara. There's 60,000 of them. God wants people who are called Tarahamara Indians. He wants them around his throne. And inside that group of 60,000 people within the Tarahamara, there's a subgroup called the Guadahil. And the Guadahil only number a thousand of them. There's only a thousand of them on this planet, but God cares deeply about them. They're Tarahamar, but they're Guadahil, and they speak a different dialect. And God wants them around his throne. He cares that minutely about people and people groups. Now, I want us to pivot just a bit And I want us to look at a very common, well-known story. And you might see it a little different than you have before, and you might see how it fits into the Great Commission like you have it before. It's in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. You all know the story. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to recite it to you because you know it so well. It's in Mark chapter 11. And the story is about Jesus... And it's when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And, and, and actually, this story is recorded four times in the Gospels. Theologians tell us that probably the story is two separate events, but they look very much alike. 
So Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem. He comes into the temple, and you know the rest of the story. He gets really upset. Because you see, he comes into the temple, and it's very crowded around the temple. It's called the temple complex. There's a lot of people around, and there are men and women that have tables set up. And they are selling sacrifices. They're selling doves. They're selling sheep, goats. They're they're selling uh, sacrifices. They're doing business around the temple square. And Jesus gets incredibly, incredibly angry. We all love this story. And I think the reason I love it so much is because I, I connect with it at such a human level because of that emotion of anger. It's very human to me. And so Jesus, uh, he gets indignant. In fact, in the book of John, it says that he took the time to fashion a whip. I've never fashioned a whip before. But, But I've got to imagine that it takes some doing. You know what I'm saying? And he goes in and he cracks the whip, yippee ki yay and he drives them out of the temple. I love that story. But Mark's rendition of the story gives us a little nugget that shows us what this story is really about. Let me, let me read it to you. Mark chapter 11, verse 17. After cleansing the temple, Jesus says, it is written. And you think you know this, but you might not. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And Mark says that Jesus says, for all nations. You see, most of the time we don't complete what he actually said. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here's what really was going on that day. Most of the towns in Israel had a synagogue But Jerusalem, at the time of Jesus, actually had a temple, a temple, a permanent big structure. It was the temple. And around the temple were what were called courts. And and the temple is in a rectangular shape, and the courts are are outside. They're, They're in a rectangular pattern around the temple. And one of the courts is called the court of the Gentiles. And what's a Gentile? A Gentile is anyone that's not a Jew. And that's probably all of us here today. And that court was specifically set up in Jerusalem where the Jews were. It was specifically set up and designated for anyone who was not a Jew, who was a Gentile, to have a priority place to come to the temple and to worship God. Where do you think that the merchants had set up their tables and were doing business? In the court of the Gentiles. So here's what that means for you and me. If we had come to Jerusalem from, I don't know, Iraq, Egypt, If we had come as a non-Jew, but we had come to worship the God Most High that we had heard about, if we had come, we would have 
gone to the church, the temple, and we would have said, where can we go to worship? And maybe someone would have said, well, you're a Gentile, right? Yes, I'm a Gentile. Well, uh, there's a place called the Court of the Gentiles. It's, it's, it's in a ring around the, 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 the temple. That's where you go to worship. And we would have gone there, and what we would have found was that there would have been no place for us to worship. You see, that's why Jesus was so angry. That's why he had that righteous indignation. Got real silent here. You see, that's what we're to be about. If we're having church, if we're doing church for any other reason, ultimately, than to bring people to Christ in Ozark, in Missouri, in the U.S., in the world, if we're doing all this for any other reason, then friends, I, I got bad, bad news for you. Jesus could have possibly come into our churches here in the United States and fashioned a whip. Those are hard, hard words to say. But friends, that's what was going on. Now maybe, maybe, most of what I've just talked about is not new to you. Maybe for the first time you have, you've seen this thread. Maybe you've connected some dots about the congruity of this message from Genesis to Revelation and this thread of God's intense desire for all men and women to be around his throne in worship. Maybe you have seen this, the different nuances of, of, of what we know as the great commission that are found in the, the Gospels and Acts. Or, or maybe for the first time you have seen this story of Jesus cleansing the temple in a new light that is directly connected to the great commission. But by and large, by and large, I would imagine that this morning, I haven't really blown your mind with anything you didn't know or kind of know or mostly know. As Christians, we are commanded to tell others about the good news of Jesus here in Ozark, Missouri and everywhere else on earth. And at some level, at some level, we all know what to do. But as most things in life, the question is not knowing what to do, but rather it is in doing what we already know. So the question of the day is why do we have such a hard time caring and engaging with God in the one activity that he cares about the most? Well, I want us first to look at very quickly some people who had no trouble, no trouble at all with this issue. Matthew chapter 9, 27 through 31, Jesus heals two blind men and he tells them to say nothing. He pulls them aside, he says, hey, listen, I healed you, I know you're excited, but I need you to do something for me. Don't tell anyone what has happened to you, stay quiet. And what do you think they did? Absolutely not. They went out and told everyone. 
They couldn't stay quiet. Mark chapter 1, 40 through 45, Jesus heals a leper, a man with a skin disease, and he tells him, hey, listen, I know this is a new day for you. Some cool stuff has just happened to you. You've got good, clean skin again, but don't go tell anyone. And what does the leper do? He goes out and he tells everybody. And it's kind of hard to hide. Mark chapter 7, 31 through 37, Jesus heals a deaf man. A deaf man has some friends bring him to Jesus. He heals him. And then right after he heals him, and he kind of does it clandestinely, he pulls him aside with his friends and he says, hey, listen, guys, um, this is a great day for you, but I really need you to do something for me. In fact, Scripture says in, in this passage that Jesus charged them, which means he was really like pulling Don't tell anyone. I mean it. I really mean it. Don't tell anyone. And what do you think they did? They immediately went out and they proclaimed Bible. The Bible says they proclaimed zealously the good news of what Jesus had done. Now, why do you think Jesus told them to tell no one? Well, uh, obviously, in some of the passages we can read and say, because he, you know, he didn't want to be overwhelmed with the crowds and it was, it was kind of a logistical thing. But here's why I really think that he included this don't tell anyone to us in Scripture. You see, he did it to illustrate that there is a perfect condition of the human heart and mind that overwhelms our emotions and it overwhelms our will that results in in, uh, an uncontrolled engagement with God's ultimate passion. And that perfect condition, what is it? That perfect condition is the perfect realization of our need for grace and that grace has been extended to us. In John chapter 1, 35 through 42, Andrew meets Jesus. And what does he do? He immediately runs and gets his brother to tell him the good news. John chapter 4, 1 through 40, the woman at the well. We know that story. In fact, I think Lane referenced it a week or so ago. What does the woman at the well do? She runs to her city, to everyone she knew, and she said, you've got to come hear the good news of what this man has done for me. All of these people were uneducated. They were outcast. They were dismissed. They were shunned. They were, they were, they were normal people like you and me. But impulsively and irresistibly, they engaged in the Great Commission, without even knowing what the Great Commission was. You see, they were overwhelmed by grace. That perfect condition that happens in the human heart overwhelmed them, and they could do nothing else but share God's ultimate passion. And here's the question that I ask myself. Why aren't I more like that? Why aren't I more like that? I want you to turn with me. We will read this story. I want you to follow along with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
after agreeing with the laborers for a denarii a, a, a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyards too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, that's important, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarii. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarii, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last work as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Let's pick, the part, pick apart the story very quickly. The, the characters of the story and the high points of it. The master of the house. The master of the house is God the Father, Jesus the Holy Spirit. That's who the master of the house is. The laborers in the story are all who accept the invitation to follow Jesus. A denarii, a, a day's wage, uh, actually represents uh, salvation, eternity uh, from uh, God the Father. So the question is, why did the laborers who were hired first in the morning grumble at the thought of others getting the same uh, reward as those who had worked as long. Well, you might say, well, this, this story's very obvious because they worked for it. They earned it. And that makes sense to us. We connect with that. Now, I get it. When Jesus told parables, you have the perfect spiritual truth, and he's trying to illustrate it with an earthly truth. Sometimes they don't always just quite match up. But if you understand the pieces and the parts of it, you understand how it matches up. So they thought, well, I've earned this. But understand this, and get this. The master of the house did not have to hire them. When he went out in the morning, there's a line of day laborers. That's how it worked. They, they weren't salaried people with pensions and benefits. They were day laborers. And they're all standing around, and the master of the house comes up, and he offers them a job. He didn't have to give them a job. He didn't have to offer it to him, but he did. So at seven o'clock in the morning, they were unemployed. At 7.15, voila, they're employed. The master chose them. Now, how do you think they felt first thing in the morning when they got chose? Well, if, if you were me, when we first get a job, what do we think? We're excited. We're happy. I was unemployed, now I'm employed. They probably had good feelings about the master. They probably would have told great testimonies about the master for hiring them because he had shown them grace. But something happened as the day went by. Something happened 
during the day. It got hot. The work got hard. There was probably sweat, tears, if you're working hard in the field. Maybe even some nicks and scrapes, maybe blood, sweat, and tears. And because of their work and the toil of the day, they forgot about the benevolence. Now get this. They forgot about the benevolence, the graciousness of the master for giving them a job and welcoming them into his family business. Can you relate to that story? You see, I can. In fact, uh, as I started studying for this, this sermon weeks ago, the Lord just took me to the story. There hadn't been a day gone by that I hadn't thought about it. I've been wrecked by this story. Because I think it illustrates and gives us the answer to why we aren't more like, why I am not more like the people in the story that impulsively, reflexively went and told the good news. You see, the day gets long. We get saved. We get into uh, the family business. We get going. It gets hard. It's not easy. We have struggles. We have crises. And to some degree, as we labor in this life as believers, we, I, sometimes come to a point of thinking I deserved to be in the family. I, and I hate to say this, but I, I earned this. I'm earning this. And the reality is I haven't earned anything. I was graciously given eternity and salvation for absolutely nothing I had done. That's why I got salvation. Nothing. It was all because of Jesus, what he did, and his coming early in the morning and saying to me, hey, come work with me. I choose you. Come be a part of my family and my mission. You see, I so many times forget grace. So, so many times forget grace. There's a story. There's a story about Paul confronting Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. You see, Peter had forgotten grace. And he started acting in a hypocritical way with the Gentiles. And Paul actually got to him and said, Paul, or Peter, you're acting hypocritically. And ultimately what was happening was Peter had become a worker in the vineyard who had been there for a long time. Because he had become something in the Christian life. He had prominence, he had place, and he forgot that perfect condition of the human heart which is understanding grace. Paul, though, understood it. And you all know this, and I'm going to end with this. Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners. Some of you may know it as the chief of sinners. I'm the biggest sinner of them all. Paul was somebody in our eyes. Dad Gummy wrote half the New Testament. 
He was somebody. But he never lost that perfect condition of the human heart, which is the understanding of his need for grace and grace extended to him. Let's pray.